You know, thankfully, um, I've never in my life had to ever stand before a judge. And uh, my hope is to keep that track record going. Uh, now, I've come somewhat close uh, back in the day because uh, in my early college years, I wasn't the slowest of drivers. Uh, during my college years, I accumulated, we'll just say, a good number of speeding tickets and actually uh, ended up having my license suspended for a good six months because the state of Illinois uh, thought it'd be best for me to slow down and learn uh, that I shouldn't be behind a wheel going as fast as I am. Now, it's actually state law because I received so many tickets within a certain amount of time that I had to be suspended. Now, I, I learned actually right before my suspension was to go into effect that uh, I could appeal it. I could appeal the suspension, or I could appeal at least one of the, the tickets that I had, I had gotten. And if that one ticket was thrown out, it would at least have cut my suspension down in, in half. Uh, so I was tempted. Like, maybe I can go before a judge, and, and I'll plead my case on, on why I shouldn't have received uh, the last speeding ticket that I, I, I received. But I decided not to because, in all honesty, I had no case to plead. Um, I was guilty. I was guilty, and it was uh, just kind of my, my arrogant, youthful self that wanted to see, I, bet, I wonder if I could go and talk my way out of a ticket. Um, can I manipulate, as, a, as some 19-year-old, can I manipulate a judge into feeling bad for me and throwing out a ticket that I well-deserved? But, but for a second, I, I had a moment of actual maturity because I understood, no, I can't because I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And in reality, I'm just some punk 19-year-old kid that needs to learn a lesson. And, and to be honest as well, I, was, I, I didn't go before the judge because I was intimidated by the thought of having to go and stand before a judge to enter into a, a courtroom of sorts and, and plead a case when the evidence is clearly stacked against me. We've all seen, uh, more than likely, images of courtrooms, and, and more than likely, many of us have, have watched certain high-level trials play out on TV. When we watch these trials play out, there's a solemnness in the courtroom. There's order in the courtroom. It's, it's never a, a light-hearted environment. It's heavy. And, and when we observe these, these trials, these high-level trials, there's probably a moment that goes through your mind if... Like what goes through my mind is that we think to ourselves, man, I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad that's not me sitting in that chair facing these accusations. And I'm glad that's not me, that, that if found guilty, that, that I'd be the one having to sit there and hear the sentencing handed down from the judge. Many, if not most of us in this room, will never find ourselves sitting in a, in a courtroom facing accusations and judgment like that. However, Scripture is very clear that, that no one will ever escape judgment. No one will ever escape God's judgment, that we will all be held to account before a, a holy God, before the judge of all the earth, and that for those who do not turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus will forever bear the wrath of a holy God. This psalm before us this morning, Psalm 50, this is the last psalm we're going through this summer. It's a judgment psalm. And so as you heard Jordan reading it, you, you probably, like me, upon first reading, felt that weightiness to it. There's a heaviness to this psalm. It's because this is a judgment psalm. But it's a judgment psalm that maybe we might not be expecting. And the reason for that is, is we typically, when we think of judgment... When we think of judgment from God, 
We think of it as something that's solely reserved for, for those that are outside the covenant relationship with God. The judgment is something that's only reserved for unbelievers, for, for non-Christians, right? That's, that's sometimes where we think, what we think. Well, not so fast. Even though many of us in this room here this morning have been saved by God's grace, that does not mean that, does not mean that we now have license to, to live and act and respond however we would like. We, we've been saved by God's grace, not through works. Yes, and amen to that, and we'll sing that, and we'll proclaim that to the day we die. It's grace and grace alone. But, but God now calls on those whom he has redeemed to now put to death that which is wicked and worldly in our lives. That we're now called as followers of Christ to crucify the flesh, to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. That this is a daily responsibility of all who belong to God, and we do so through the power of the Spirit and by God's grace, but we now must work to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Let me back that statement up with Scripture. Philippians 1, 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The following chapter in Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Romans 6, 12 and 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. These passages and so many others like it teach that that those who now belong to God must live lives worthy of the gospel to which we claim and, and which we are being changed by while at the same time remembering that our right standing before a holy God is not based upon our performance to live perfectly, but upon the perfect life and sacrifice of Christ. But Christ's life, his perfect life, does not excuse us from living as God has called us to live. Listen, I have two children. They will always be my children. There's nothing that my children can do to lose my love for them and their place in our family. They belong to us. That cannot be changed. They belong to Amy and I. But, but Amy and I also have standards and expectations within our home. We have standards and expectations on them of how we desire them to live. Now, now we, they know that mom and dad, they know mom and dad will always love them. That's, that's clear to them. But that that doesn't mean that they just then have free reign to live and do whatever they want. And when they fall short of the expectations that we've set in our home, as parents, we render judgment and oftentimes sentencing. (laughs) Psalm 50, like I've said, is a judgment psalm of God's people. It's a judgment psalm of God's people. That's why I said it's it's a judgment psalm that we might not expect. It's a call to God's people to examine their lives against the word of God, and to repent and turn where they fall short. This psalm is taking us before the judge of all the earth. There's a heaviness and solemnness to that, that we're entering in the psalm into the courtroom of God, and it's a a sobering experience calling us for sober reflection as God's people. 
Because God, as the judge of all the earth, is gonna, he's going to issue two charges against God's people. Well, one charge is going to be against those who truly belong to God. The other charge is going to be against those who think they're part of God's covenant family or pretend to be, but they truly aren't. And his charge is going to expose them. Charges are never easy to hear. Accusations are never easy to hear. But if we want to, as God's people, experience the fullness of life as God has intended for his creation and to experience the fullness of joy that is found at his right hands, if we want to truly walk in, 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 in life and prosperity and, and, and live underneath the good, right, reign rule of God, then we need to hear these charges and we need to put our lives up against them. And where we fall short, we need to admit where we're guilty and then repent. And the promise is that those who respond favorably to God's charges will find fullness of joy. That's the promise. So let's enter the courtroom and we're going to hear from him. See, in these opening six verses, we we see this, that God is entering the courtroom as judge of all the earth. Hear what the psalmist says in these first six verses. He says, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God calms. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah. Do you see in verses 4 and 5 God's summoning of his covenant people to stand before him as he issues judgment? This psalm was obviously addressed to to Israel, his covenant people, his beloved, and we now, as the church bought and paid for by the, 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 the death of Christ, we now belong to him as well, that we are his covenant people as well, his beloved. This is a solemn moment here as the judge is entering the courtroom. His name is being being proclaimed. Here's who the judge is. And this judge is summoning all people to hear from him. See, verse 1 says, the mighty one, God the Lord, he speaks and summons the earth. In that first verse, we see three names of God here. He is El, or the mighty one. He's the one who leads and is strong over all. We see a second name of God. He is Elohim. It means God. He's the one who rules over the universe. He's the object of religious fear. Lastly, we have the name Yahweh or the self-existent one. This name, which means he exists because he says he exists. That's power. That is might. That is serious. Verse 3 says, our God comes. He does not keep silence. That before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. All right, so in your mind's eye, imagine the scene. See the courtroom. See the throne of which the judge is sitting. This scene reminds me of, of Isaiah's vision of God's throne room in Isaiah 6. Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. Then the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Then the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the judge of all the earth entering his courtroom. All mouths are shut at his appearance and at the hearing of his name. He is the mighty one. He is God. He is Lord, the self-existent one. And as God calls all the earth, he's summoning the earth before him. So he calls to the heavens above, to the earth below, from the east to the west. This means that no one is escaping his judgment. Church, do we see God as holy, holy, holy? Brother and sister here, do you fear God and treat him with with awe and respect, the awe and respect that he is deserving of rightly? Do you see him as glorious? When we see God in his holiness and his might and his strength and his power and his rule over the universe, do we respond like Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips, I've seen the king. Do we see the the grotesqueness of our sin, of our betrayal against this holy God? Do we see our need for grace and then marvel that he has been merciful to us? In R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, he says this. He says, when we understand the character of God, when we grasp something of his holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. Even Jonathan Edwards' sermon on sinners in God's hands was not designed to stress the flames of hell. The resounding accent falls not on the fiery pit, but on the hands of the God who holds us and rescues us from it. The hands of God are gracious hands. They alone have the power to rescue us from certain destruction. This is a holy God. Verse 6 ends with the word Selah. There's debate over what the word Selah means, but it typically seems to indicate a, a break in the Psalms, a break in thought. Or, or what's been said, and I believe personally that it's also a call to quiet reflection and meditation. Now, if that's true, then there is no better time to pause and to meditate here as we reflect on his holiness, on his might, on the glory of the king of all the universe, the judge of all the earth, to be silent before him. As the, uh, the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 2.20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's do that now. Before we hear God's charges, before we hear his indictments, let's be silent before him and meditate upon his holiness. So as we do that, let's come before him. Would you bow and pray with me as we hear from him? Father, we want to take a moment to silent our our hearts, 
to turn our gaze, our affections, our, our minds, our hearts on you. Father, you are holy. We are unholy. In fact, our, our holiness, our blamelessness only comes through those who are resting in the sufficiency and the perfection, the life, death, resurrection of Christ. God, you are infinite. We are finite. God, you have no beginning. We have beginnings and ends. God, you are God. We are not. You are the creator. We are nothing but your creation. And so, God, as, as we gaze upon your holiness, your might, your, your sovereignty, may we, like the prophet says, let us be silent before you, meaning let us not seek to excuse ourselves, to justify ourselves, to open up our mouths against and give excuse for who we are, but to sit underneath your judgment, but yet know that through Christ we are redeemed and restored. So God, we want to hear from you in this heavy psalm. God, knowing, knowing though that responding favorably to it will bring life and joy and meaning and purpose to our lives. So God, may we hear from you this morning as you speak. In Christ's name, amen. Let's hear God speak to us now through his word. Verse 7 through 15, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This here is the first charge that we see. And the first charge that we see in these verses is the charge of formalism. The charge of formalism. The indictment of formalism. Now, what is formalism? Well, formalism is, is in a rudimentary sense, a strict adherence to prescribed or external religious forms. Meaning that the thinking behind religious formalism is that by simply doing what has been asked of me, regardless of my heart motives, regardless of my attitude, regardless of my heart engagement in what God is calling me to do, that, that I can in some way um, uh, give to God what he needs. That maybe even some weirder sense we can appease a holy God through our religious acts and our piety. That's formalism. So what's happening here in these verses that God levies this charge against his people? Well, we need to remember that, that in the books of the law, which include Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that God gave his people, he gave the Israelites his law. That through those books, we read of instructions that God gave them for, for constructing the tabernacle, for, for building within this tabernacle, the, this holy of holies, the most holy place where God would reside with his people. He gave instructions for the, the role of the high priest the one who is able to once a year enter into this most holy place to offer sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of God's people. 
God gave in, in his law detailed instructions regarding the entire sacrificial system and what was required of his people to, for their sins to be forgiven, for their sins against him to be atoned for. Now, God's people misunderstood the purpose of the law. They misunderstood the purpose of the priesthood and what it pointed to. They misunderstood the purpose of the tabernacle and the purpose of the sacrificial system. They didn't fully grasp what God was seeking to reveal to them, to to lead them to see and behold. Now I don't have time to go, go into all of this, but from just a very high level, God instituted the sacrificial system to reveal to his people the ugliness of sin. That, that sin is so grotesque that death has to pay for it. That blood must be spilled. Sacrifice must happen in order for your sins to be forgiven. He was showing the, the, the need that they had for redemption, for atonement. Showing the, the need that they had for a restored relationship with their, with their creator. To show the, the need for a true and better sacrifice. The, a better sacrifice that, 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 than just a sacrifice of lambs and goats, the need for a once-for-all sacrifice that would fully atone for the sins of God's people. He, he, he instituted us to show them the need for a, a better high priest who could enter into the Holy of Holies, enter into the throne room of God and not fall on their knees like Isaiah and say, woe is me, but to enter into the presence of God, make atonement for the sins of God's people and invite them into his grace. This is what this was seeking to reveal and draw them back to, once again, this restored relationship with their creator, the one who has breathed life into their lungs. All of this in the law was pointing to this future Messiah. Everything was pointing to Jesus, who would be the once-for-all final sacrifice for sin. But the, the charge levied against God's people is that they were missing this. That they, they missed that, that God was after their, their hearts being engaged with him, understanding their, their depravity and their brokenness and their need for a Messiah, one to come to make them right with God again. And instead, they were entering into this formalistic way of, of thinking that as long as I just keep making the sacrifice, as long as I keep on autopilot, keep going through the motions of what God has asked me to do, then God has to be okay with me. Their hearts were not engaged in what God was calling them to. There was no true repentance, no true desire in many to put sin to death, to pursue and love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. There was no true desire to obey him, to follow him. They just lived on autopilot, these formalists did, thinking that I'm doing what's been asked. I'm doing what's been asked. I'll just make my sacrifice and God and I will be good. Here's a really simple illustration to try and show the problem with this that we, we recognize here. Uh, when siblings fight, uh, when they fight each other, and, or one sibling does something to the other to, to hurt them, uh, what do we typically have them do to make things right? We, we, we call them together and say, okay, you, you need to go to them. You need to tell them you're sorry. You need to go give them a hug. And, and what, what is the typical response, right? Sorry. Here's the hug. All right. Now, let me ask you, did they do what was asked? Yeah, they did. They said the word sorry. They, they technically gave the, the, the dictionary definition of a hug. There was, there was some form of engagement, embracing. So, so why when we see our, our kids act that way, respond that way, do, do parents have a problem with what they just did? 
Well, it's because we, we know that there was no engagement, there's no heart engagement in that. That, that what they did wasn't real. They, they just went through the motions, the ritual of what was asked of them or expected of them. They're not thinking through what they did to harm the other person and, and the need that you're trying to lay before them to, to, to be restored, to make things right again. Now, before we get too far down the road here, let me again bring us back to the text. In verse 8, God says, listen, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are, are continually before me. So, so let me say this. Like, ritual is not a bad thing. Tradition is not a bad thing. Healthy rhythms in our, in our lives are a good thing. We, we here as a church have a certain liturgy that we walk through every single Sunday. In fact, my devotional life follows this similar liturgy that, that we have here. There's a call to worship. There's a prayer of confession, assurance of grace, hearing from God's word, then responding to it, and then, then being sent to go proclaim it and live on mission in the midst of darkness. There's nothing wrong with ritual. There's nothing wrong with liturgy and tradition. We practice baptism and practice the Lord's Supper here often. God's saying here in the psalm, listen, I'm not rebuking you because you're making sacrifices. I've asked you to make sacrifices. But, but what the charge is, is like, but you're failing to understand that the rituals that I've given you, right, the rhythm of worship that I've given you in your life, I've given them to you for your benefit, not mine. What's he saying in verses 9 through 13? He says, I don't need, I don't need bulls and goats and birds. Like, like when you're bringing these sacrifices, you're not giving them to me. Like I don't need them. They all belong to me anyway. I've made all of them. And if I ran out, I can just speak them into existence. Do you really think that you're giving me something that's not already mine? No, what he's saying here is what you need to be reminded of is that, that you're offering a sacrifice because of your sin and betrayal of a holy God. And that instead of destroying you because of your sin, God here is saying, I'm accepting the destruction of another, the sacrifice of another, the death of another in your place and giving you grace. All of this. All of this that God has given us, even as he gave his people here in a sacrificial system, was meant to, to result in them, as, as, as he says in verse 14, a, a spirit of thankfulness, which, which results in a spirit of worship. That's what God's after. The ritual is seeking to lead them into a fuller understanding of how great and gracious and merciful and amazing and good God is. And instead, they're just saying, I just need to make the sacrifice. And they say, sorry, give a hug, and move on with my life. I did what he asked. See, when we ask our child to say sorry to their sibling, we're not after them just saying the word. We want them to recognize that, that they've hurt and offended another human being. They need to own up to their mistake. They need to confess it. When, when we want them to, to hug it out, we're saying you need this relationship to be restored again. You see, formalism thinks that I, I did what was asked. That's good enough. Get off my back. I did what you asked me to do. I'm doing God a favor, the formalist thinks. God's calling us instead, though, to a spirit of thankfulness and worship that should be continually welling up in our hearts then as we meditate upon him and his holiness, his goodness and his deliverance for sinful betrayers like we are. We celebrate communion today. The formalist believes scripture tells me to do this often. I did this today. I, I'm good. I, and I did God a favor. Meanwhile, God is in the heaven saying, if that's your heart mindset there, he's saying, I don't care 
I don't care that you just ate a, a styrofoamish piece of bread. I don't care that you just drank a little, little, little plastic cup of juice. I don't need that from you. Like, I don't need that bread. I don't need that juice. I own it anyway. It says, I've instituted the Lord's Supper, this communion. This is for you, for your good. You know, these elements of the bread and the juice to remind you of what I've done for you, which then should result in a heart attitude of thankfulness and worship, which then leads to a life that glorifies God as the giver and the sustainer and deliverer of all, as verse 15 points to. Even, even gathering together as we do as, as the church on Sunday mornings, listen, we don't enter into this room thinking God needs my attendance. God needs my, his, his reputation in the world today is struggling so I'm going to come in here and, and give props to God like I'm still for you. Like God's like, I don't, I don't need you. I don't need you to, to, to make much of me as if I'm really struggling in, in my self-esteem. Listen, I'm glorified. You gather together as a church because you need this. You need to hear this call to worship. You need to see me. You need to hear from my word and respond to it. You need to confess your sin and repent. And there, there needs to be a time of encouragement and, and, and uni, unifying and mutual singing together as we remind one another of the truth. And then they sending to say, let's go. He's like, this is for you, not for me. And so charge number one is a charge against God's people who are misunderstanding what God is after in their lives. Thinking we can earn or, or even just maintain favor through ritual and religion. It's a mindset that believes that God somehow needs our religious or ritualistic acts when in reality what God is after is a thankful heart, a heart that then springs up in worship of him. But there's also a second charge in verses 16 through 21 that we'll walk through a little bit more quickly. And then there's a change in this charge of who he's addressing. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, he says, But to the wicked, I, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips. So this brings us to the second charge, which is the charge of hypocrisy. The first charge was given to those who are truly God's people and have just meandered away from God's expectation and standard for them. They've taken their eyes, their hearts off of what God's drawing them into. It was a heavy charge, but a loving one that was meant to draw them back into his presence. This charge here, though, that we just read is, is, is different. Because he says in verse 16, he's addressing the wicked. So this charge is levied against those who, who think that they, they, they belong to God through saying the right things. Maybe they're saying the right things out of one side of their mouth, but really what they're doing is living in direct and defiant disobedience of God. Right? That's hypocrisy. In, in public, when surrounded by others, they say the right things. They probably sound very religious. They maybe sound very upright, but in secret their true selves are actually revealed and they live completely contrary to what God has called them to do and how to live. In verse 17, it says that they hate discipline, that they cast aside God's words. These are people who are not interested in obeying and submitting to God's word. They, they, they say they are, but the opposite is, is true instead. In verses 18, 19, 20, all give evidence of their hypocrisy. Right? They're thieves and adulterers and lustful both in mind and in heart. They're deceitful and they're slanderous. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're a follower of Christ that, that well, Christians never sin. That's not what this means. But I've always loved how Mark Dever puts it, and I've slightly paraphrased how he's said this. But Mark Dever says that the difference, the difference between Christians and non-Christians 
is not that non-Christians sin and Christians don't. The difference is found in what side we take in the battle. Christians take God's side against sin, whereas non-Christians take sin's side against God. A Christian will sin, but turn to God and his word and say, help me fight my sin. Whereas a non-Christian, even if he recognizes his sin, effectively responds, I want my sin more than God. Now, these are strong words here that I'm about to say, but we need to hear them. You cannot continue in unrepentant sin, in direct disobedience to God's word, and still claim to be a Christian. And I'm not talking about perfection here. Christians fall short of God's standard. But what reveals that we belong to Christ is that we fight sin in our lives by the power of the Spirit. We don't excuse it. We don't justify it. We slay it. And so if you are an unrepentant slanderer of others, if you're living dishonestly with others or cheating others in your business, if you are living in a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse, if you're indulging in pornography and lustful thoughts, if you're abusing alcohol, if you're unrepentant gossip, stirring division without warring against those sins in your life, that inciting with God against it, saying, help me defeat this, help me slay this, engaging in communion with others to put that sin to death, but instead are approving of it, ignoring it, justifying it, or thinking that maybe I do enough religious acts to somehow overshadow your direct disobedience to God's word, then you are, by definition of Scripture, a hypocrite. And Scripture would say you're not a true follower of God. Now, I know those are hard words to hear, but God's words are harder in verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you, and I lay the charge before you. My rebuke is weak. My rebuke is weak. I'm just, I'm just trying to draw your hearts to God's word. But God's rebuke from the mighty one, the God who reigns over the universe, the self-existent one, should send a shiver down your spine. Is this you? If so, how will you respond to that charge? The charge is meant to awaken you. It's meant to awaken you for your need, for God's grace and mercy, forgiveness. In the remaining two verses, God, the judge, he makes his final statement to all. He's going to address everyone again. Both those who truly belong to him, but become misguided, and those who are the hypocrites and imposters. Hear how this courtroom ends. It says, mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me, to one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. There have been two kinds of people in this psalm, the formalist and the hypocrite. Both forget God. Both are forgetting God. The formalist forgets that, that what God truly desires is a, a heart that is thankful for his, his grace and his mercy, which then begins to spring up in, in worship of his great and glorious name. The hypocrite mocks God, forgets God, thinking that they can manipulate him through their pious words while their lives live in complete direct disobedience of what he's called them to. They forget that God is judge over all the earth and that their sins will not be forgotten. And so though there are two kinds of people addressed here, the response from both of them should really be the same, and that is to repent. 
to repent. And that really here is the good news of the gospel. That's the good news, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that those who repent of their sins and turn in faith to Christ find forgiveness. That, that, that the, the formalist in this room here, if you're, man, I'm just not engaged with, with, with what God's called me to do. I've been on autopilot for far too long that the response to you then is to, to rest and hope in the gospel, that you are still loved and accepted through Christ and Christ alone, not through your work, but then to, to, to match your life against God's word and say, it's, it's not lining up. I need to change. Not, not God. God doesn't need to change to adjust to what you want to do. You adjust to him. And that's through repentance. So we repent and say, God, what, what, what we need, the formalist needs is really revival, uh, renewal, to see things anew again, to, 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 to think that, okay, when I'm singing here, I'm not singing because God desperately needs to hear my voice, but, but I need to sing these words. I need to remind myself of his grace and his mercy, which then, which then results in the glorification of his name. So that's what, that's what we need if, if you're the formalist, to repent and turn. But if you're the hypocrite in here, maybe you're just, I, you're thinking through religious acts and piety and whatever you do on one side, but you're living completely contrary to what God's called you to live, and you know it. If you're excusing that, if you're living that without fighting that, slaying that sin, then Scripture is giving a, a massive red flag, a massive warning to you, and basically saying you more than likely are not actually a true believer. A believer is going to fight sin by the power of the Spirit. And so maybe for you this morning is, is you need to have that initial resting and hope in the gospel to believe, to believe, to confess, to admit, to turn in faith to Christ for that first time and receive grace, mercy, forgiveness, and eternal life. This is a heavy psalm as we've been entering into and as we've entered into God's courtroom, but God's a good God, a faithful God, a loving God, and so he would not share these words, these charges with us if he did also not provide a way of deliverance through it. And so let's turn to Christ and be delivered. Let's pray.